Hey Chinkona listeners, this is Nadia coming to you with another episode of the pod. And this time I'm going to be sharing an interview I did with this Chingona named Andrea de la Vega. So Andrea is a DACA recipient, which in case you're not familiar by now, stands for Deferred Action for Childhood Arrivals. The short version of this policy is that it provides a certain level of protection and rights to people who were brought to the U.S. as undocumented children. And that's the very quick and dirty summary of what this policy is about. There's definitely a lot more to it. Andrea's story is unique because she actually came to the United States with documents, with a visa, but through a weird glitch in our immigration system, actually became undocumented. And now, as a DACA recipient, is sort of in this strange limbo. So when I spoke to her last September, it had been just one week since Donald Trump had announced he was bringing an end to the DACA program. So there was still a lot of confusion and people not really quite sure what was going on. And there had just been a report that some people traveling from the Rio Grande Valley up north to Corpus Christi had been detained. They'd been stopped at the Border Patrol checkpoint in Falfurias, which is about 100 miles north of the border from Mexico. And so we're starting off um, this interview talking about that, and I was giving Andrea an update about what happened to those folks. And then from there, we're going to move on to her story. Actually, did you hear what's happening right now at the at the checkpoint? Yeah. Like today, I heard about that, and I'm like, oh, there goes me being hopeful. <laughs> well, that's, and they were released. They were? So, oh, yeah. my sister will want to hear that. Claude, did you hear that? What? The people were released in Fanfurias. Oh, she, she's going to come over here. She's stalling. You know, but what happened? They, what? Or, or were they IDing people? Well, like asking people for their IDs? I'm not sure. I think they were just, I think, I just know that they found these size people with actual valid DACAs and, like, held them because of the new, no, it's not recording. Well, I don't know, but you're fine. It is, but, like. But you don't matter, so. I'm just kidding. <laughs> I'm, just like, I'm just the personal assistant. Yeah. No, um, yeah, they were, they were basically stopping people with valid DACAs and, like, holding them there. And, um, even though they were, have legal status, so they shouldn't. Uh, because they were confused. Like, the people at the checkpoint were confused about what came out and yeah, what the dude, actual law is. The people at the checkpoint in the valley are, like, kids out of high school. They yeah. don't know anything about anything. Yeah. I they literally don't know anything about immigration. They would always they stop look at, us They look at, like, visas, visa and they're and like, like, cool numbers. And they give it back to you. I'm like, I don't <laughs> fucking know. Yeah. So it's always, that's always fun. I'm like, that's always fun. Well, I don't know. I mean... The thing that has been interesting to me to see is, like, how amazingly, like, outspoken and brave a lot of people are being, and they're like, yeah, I'm undocumented, and I was raised here, and I'm just American as you are, Yeah. and I'm just like, oh my god. You're like, you go. Yeah. And I think that the only thing, and I think that's what's giving me so much, um, how do I say, like, I guess the, the... the courage to a certain extent to to speak out about it is because technically I wasn't illegal. Like technically I was documented when I first came here and throughout the whole experience up until I quote unquote aged out, you know? And then it was like it was weird because technically even according to the government I feel like we weren't I wasn't illegal, 
but I wasn't necessarily, I didn't have necessarily legal status either. It was like a super limbo, you know what I mean? Andrea began to tell me about her family's decades-long battle to get citizenship. By the way, when we were talking, her sister was doing her hair, so she's multitasking. Andrea was born in a Mexican town across the border from Eagle Pass, Texas. In 1998, her family was living in Reynosa, Mexico, when her dad got a worker visa to come to the U.S. because his sister vouched for him, and he worked for her for several years. Andrea's mom and her three siblings were allowed into the country because they were dependent on her dad, who had the visa. We were allowed to live here as dependents on a TN. So, you know, we don't get, we don't, we can't work. And we were children anyway, but my mom herself couldn't work. Um, and she had just, like, you know, she had graduated a couple years earlier with like a psychology degree in Mexico and she could not use it because here they were chasing the American dream, right? So, um, yeah, so my so my my dad came over, he brought us all over, and prior to that, while they were figuring all this out, we were living in Mexico, but still going to school in the United States. So my parents were like, you know, doing the whole drive over, and I'm sure you you crossed the border, right? So you know that whole like line that yeah. takes hours. You know, they did that like every day, taking us to school and bringing us back. So that was like a big sacrifice in the beginning, just to wait and get this piece out. They did that for like two. Andrea addressed a lot of the misconceptions that people have about the U.S. immigration system. When people say that immigrants need to do things the legal way or, quote-unquote, get in line, just know that Andrea's parents did that. They tried to become citizens the legal way. It took them almost 20 years. The thing that I think a lot of people don't understand is you don't just apply for citizenship once and then it's like, you're done. Um, you apply for citizenship, and especially if you decide to go the route that my dad went, which is a sibling. And that's probably one of the longest uh, procedures to go through because the need isn't as great as if your spouse is calling you or your parents are calling you or you, you, know, you have a baby in the United States and that way your baby essentially is calling you, which is they've coined the wonderful term anchor baby for that. Yeah. And so those cases are a little more extreme. There's a little more urgency when it's like your sister there tends to be a very minimal amount of urgency on that. And so that process can take up to 15 years. Our take, ours took 18. So if you take 18 years to accept a policy or to, you know, run through this policy, it's like, well, of course people are going to age out. So you can't be a dependent on someone once you're 21. And so slowly, like, we're getting closer to this age. And, and you know, my older, my parents have four kids. And so you can imagine going through this process, it's like, redoing a visa every two years or so. You have to reapply for the TN, get paid for all of the dependents. And I mean, that's $1,000 a person times six. And that's like wow. every couple of years. Yeah. And then you're very limited as to where you can work, how much you can make at, on this TN. So it's like they're basically setting you up to fail or to you know to get yourself involved in some illegal activity. Not to say that's what my dad did at all, but it was a struggle. You know, it's like, I mean, especially with a big family. You know, my parents didn't just have three, two kids. They had four. <laughs> so paying for all of them on a very minimal wage. My mom couldn't work. Um, what was your dad doing? He was working for my aunt um, as, I think he was, like, welding when we first started. Like, as, a, you know, when we were really young, he was, like, welding at our store. And he kind of started working his way up. And then eventually they were able to afford a lawyer, right? So a lot of this stuff, they didn't know at the time when they applied, you know, they didn't know American laws and they just kind of did it. They couldn't afford a lawyer, so they just kind of did it on their own. 
and I think that's how they ended up taking the smallest, I mean, the shortest, the longest route possible, um, because they didn't know it was going to be like that at first. And so when they finally were able to afford a lawyer, you know, it was, the lawyer was like, well, by the way, you did it the worst way possible, but you've already started, it's already this much time, there's no point in reapplying for the citizen, or for the residency anyway. Um, kind of at that point, it was the best way just to keep going, you know. And so um, we were able to get a lawyer, so my dad was kind of find a, able to find a way to like still work. So you can work as a contractor, um, because you know foreign people can work as contractors in the United States as long as, again, you're paying your taxes and you're not asking for benefits or workman's comp and stuff like that, which you don't get as one of the T99, which is a contractor, um, you're able to work. So they, they figured that out, and so my mom was able to start working for Mary Kay. But around the time that Andrea was set to graduate high school and start applying to college, her dad's worker visa expired, and he was put on a waiting list for his United States residency to kick in. Her family entered official immigration limbo. So just don't go back. Just stay with this visa that's telling you to wait, kind of, like a waiting visa. And um, and, and you're, you can stay here, and you're kind, you're kind of legal. But you really... So the thing is this weird thing, and I still have never... I don't remember the name of what this visa was, but it was like an essential, like telling the government you're, you're waiting to get your residency but this can take I think that was like when I was like 16 or something you know which gosh that must have been about 2007 that was 10 years ago my parents got their actual residency last year what so yeah and they applied in 98 it kind of went through around 2000 I would say around 2008 2007 and it took about 10 more years for it to for nine I guess give or take for them to re actually finally get the you know the residency card in their hands wow so yeah it was that waiting period that during that waiting period we aged out really the three older siblings all aged out I, I you all turned 21 we all turned time. so my brother turned 21 first and we were just like okay well damn it you know we thought maybe we'd get in there before he turned 21 didn't happen and we're like okay for sure next year and it's always like the longest year of your life when you're waiting for something you know and it's like before my sister turns you know they were like okay Maybe next year, and then the next year, and then she's turning, she's about to turn 21, and it's like, become, turning 21 became, like, nerve-wracking, you know, because, like, well, now we're screwed, you know? So, were you in a situation, you and your siblings, where your parents had legal status, but y'all didn't? So, yeah, at that time, when we finally, when we aged out, because even that waiting visa thing was considered legal status, and then, don't get me wrong, there was a lot of confusion, because there's confusion with all, with what happened today being the prime example of, you know, kids or people on this DACA being stopped at the checkpoint because they're not sure what the law really is now. That happened to us so many times with that visa. Like, they would pull us out of the car, all of us, detain us for a couple of hours while they did research, essentially, into what the hell it was. And then at the end, they were like, oh, okay, it's fine. Now you can go. But it was like... That's how tricky immigration is, is that even, I feel like there's new policies, new forms, new numbers, new statuses coming out constantly that even though in Border Patrol agents can't keep up to us, you know? And so on this waiting visa, it was, again, it was kind of considered status, but not really. And so a lot of the times we got pulled over, we got, you know, stopped, we got held. And, um, and even then, at some point, we aged out of that. Because it's, it's, you're waiting for your residency, but once you turn 21, you don't apply for a team. You're not a dependent on who was applying anymore. So now you can apply, essentially you can apply on your own is what they're saying. But to apply on your own, you need to go back to Mexico. You need to reapply and spend all the money. 
and then you need to wait a couple months for us to decide, possibly years, for us to decide if we're going to give it to you. So at that point, legally, you were expected to go back to Mexico. Essentially. That, that's your only option. That, yeah, it's almost like a forced self-deportation, right? Because you have to go back and you have to either reapply and again it's money it's it's a it's and it's a very confusing process to where almost like you have to get a lawyer because otherwise you could do what my parents did which is make a mistake on the way you apply you know so you would have to start the process over but just for yourself on your own and again just to start it before you can even get back into the united states you have to it's like a month or two or maybe longer or maybe even a year that's why my parents had to wait a couple of years without going back and forth to school because they were applying that whole time, but it takes that long to even get accepted, you know? And it's like, okay, I'm going to go back to Mexico for six months to a year, two years, and do what while I'm waiting to come back? You know what I mean? And it, it just it just doesn't make sense. <laughs> how, how does that work, you know? So I, at this time, I think it was around that time in high school, um, and, and I do want to mention, you know, High school, in all of my school, I was always a very overachieving kind of kid, you know. Um, I liked getting good grades, and I liked, you know, studying and reading. I love school. I'm like the weird kid who loves school. And uh, <laughs> when I, uh, you know, when I was about to graduate, that was when we had that waiting thing, and, and no college recognized that as a status. So, because the, no, even the Border Patrols themselves didn't know what the hell it was. A college, much less. You know, you don't have a social. You don't have a passport number. You don't, like, they gave you options, but I don't have any of that, because this visa isn't that. And so they were like, well, we can't recognize you, you basically can't even apply. And then if we, if you, even if I could apply, it's not like I can get loans for it, because, again, to have loans, they, the government needs to be able to identify you. You don't have a Mexico ID number, you don't have an American ID number, you're just in limbo. And so, you know, I have, I have vivid memories of, like, sitting there with all these people, all my college, you know, all my high school classmates, you know, applying to college, and I'm just sitting there, literally just sitting there by myself, um, not, nobody, nobody knew what to do, like, the, the counselors are like, well, we don't know what this is, you know. Andrea did get into the University of Texas Pan American, which is now called UT Rio Grande Valley. It's where all the women who made this podcast got their degrees, and where we met Andrea. It's in Edinburgh, Texas, literally about 20 miles north of the border with Mexico. They were able to find a way to help me out, and, and I was able to get accepted, thank God. Still wasn't able to get loans, so my parents, again, are paying not only this out of pocket, but all the immigration stuff out of pocket, lawyers, all this stuff. And it's very, and again, times six. <laughs> so, you know, I always think about, I have memories of being like, man, I wonder how different and how much more possibly you know, well off we would have been if, if it hadn't been for having to spend this money just constantly, every couple years, and lawyers, and, and everything with immigration costs money. Getting in trouble with the law is not just getting in trouble with the law, it's getting in trouble with the law and ICE, you know, the, and, and that's more money than it would be if you just had a normal whatever, misdemeanor, whatever. ICE on top of that, it's a lot more money, you know? So again, it's just, I think about, you know, how hard my parents worked, and how all of their money, a lot of their money, a great percentage of their money went to the government to try to do this the legal way. And even then, three of their four kids aged out, were given this DACA, and then now it's getting taken away. <laughs> in September 2017, DACA kids and immigration were the main topics in national political news. 
Frustrated by what people were saying, Andrea essentially came out as a DACA recipient and started telling her story. You know, it's funny when I, I think a lot of this started with that Facebook post um, that, I, that I put out and what I was kind of, and what triggered that was a lot of what people were saying about, you know, calling parents, bringing their kids over here kind of criminals and oh, don't punish the kid for the parent's crime or whatever. And, and it bothers me because one, my parents didn't commit a crime. They literally do it the legal way. And not only are the kids still getting punished, they're essentially getting punished because their children could or could not be kicked out of the country or living in secrecy or in fear constantly. And so it's that and then it's just a lot of like psychological effect I feel like that that I always like to mention because I feel like not enough people talk about it. Like you know today I posted a picture of these kids who were all in their graduation caps and it said now what? Um, and I seriously was just saying that to a, with some couple of friends I was talking to, like, that was always every milestone I hit. It was like, okay, a high school hit, you know, when I graduated from high school was that around that time. And I was like, well, now what? I can't apply to college, you know, for that time when I didn't know that UTV was going to be able to help me. And then once I was about to graduate college, I was like, great, well, now what? <laughs> I can't get a job. I aged out. I don't have a status. And it was around that time DACA came out. And I was just like, thank God, you know, it was something. Um, it wasn't the DREAM Act that was originally proposed in 2001, and that would have been, um, you know, a pathway to citizenship. The DACA is totally different. The DACA is what came out because the DREAM Act didn't pass. The DACA is literally deferred action for childhood arrivals, and deferred action means they're deferring your deportation. It does not mean we're giving you citizenship at all, and I think people confuse that a lot. Um, and, and again, and, and I want to clear up, it, the handout situation, I've heard a lot of people be like, oh, it's a handout. No, it is absolutely not. It is you paying, or you know, someone who's applying, paying $500 to the government, you know, always to apply, you need to spend, I actually just did it today. Um, so that goes 500 of my money. And so it's, it's, you pay $500 to be able to work for two years. And um, you can work pay taxes, I still pay all of the taxes that everyone else pays get taken out of my paycheck and the more you make, the more you get taken out just like everybody else, um, except the real rich people, right? And, uh, and then if, I still, I still pay all those taxes, and, and, but the only thing I don't have is the right to vote. <laughs> I don't get access to any of the benefits of like, you know, Medicare and all the social security benefits that you normally would get if you are a citizen, I do not get, um, even though I contribute to that. And uh, I also don't get to leave the country. So even to this day, um, yeah, I haven't gone back to Mexico in about 10 years. And, and totally not by choice. You know, I, I, growing up especially so close to the border, it's like, you know, I had friends who would be like, go to Bordeso, you know, Bordeso to drink or whatever. But just to be able to, it was so easy just to be able to cross. And even though I was born there and all my cousins and families or, or families there, I haven't gone because I'm literally not allowed to come back anyway. When Andrea was in college at UTPA in 2012, the Obama administration implemented DACA, which basically is a policy saying if you meet certain requirements and you're in school or you're in the military, you don't get into trouble, you'll be considered low priority for deportation for two years. In this next clip, Andrea mentions the date June 12, 2015, but she actually meant 2012. And, um, when the doctor came out, nobody really knew what it was, right? And it was like, it's weird. Whenever this big policy comes out, it's just like now, like when, when you know Trump announced, it's like nobody really knows what they're doing. Everybody's kind of scattering and 
when it first came out, that's how it was, right? And so it's like, okay, I know this means it could help me, right? And I think it came out because of a lot of cases like mine. You know, they were just kind of like, what do we do with these kids? <laughs> you know? Especially something in, like, my situation where it's like, I didn't come here illegally. Like, why? What is going on? Like, how am I, I going to get you know, deported for, you know, when I didn't, again, I had a status at some point. I remember so many situations where they were like, Ugh, like, they would look at our paperwork and be like, what do we do with you, you know? And so when it came out, it was like, okay, you're, you have to apply. They had all these, like, guidelines of how you had to apply. You basically had to prove that you've been going to school since you were a kid here, so which means going to your elementary as a, you know, 20-some-year-old adult and being like, hey, do you saw my report cards or my record, which they did not, so you have to go to, like, the county, and have to search for it there. And it, it's like, what people don't realize is that's time, energy, money, like, that's all tacked onto on top of whatever you're doing. If you have a job, you have to do, you have to find time to do all of this immigration process too. If you're going to college, you know, you have a test, forget it, you have to do this stuff too. This is more important. You know what I mean? It's like, again, there's these little things that I feel like people tend to forget. Like, oh, that, you know, DACA was a handout. It's like, no, it took so much effort to even get it. And money, and now, like, again, it's being taken away, which makes me so sad. But anyway, so... Yeah, people are... It seems like people have this idea that people who are on DACA are just, like, sitting at home, collecting all these government checks and living a good life. Right, like, it was easy. I'm like, a handout. Where did you get this idea? And part of the reason why I'm doing this is because of that. I'm like, no, it was a pain in the ass to get this, like, I had to go to so many, like, the counties, all my schools, and then the craziest one was you had to um, prove that you were in the United States on June 12th, I believe, yeah, June 12th, 2015, the most random day ever, like, wh- like, how am I supposed to know what the hell I was doing on June 12th, 2015, like, if you didn't happen to take a picture with the date somehow on it, what did you do to prove that, how did you prove that? And I remember that was a big quite. I remember I was doing it with a friend of mine who was also in the same situation as me. And uh, we were like, how do we do this? <laughs> how do we prove this? And I remember searching through my pictures. And I was like, literally the only thing I could think of was that I posted something on Facebook that day. And I was like, I remember going to a lawyer. And they didn't even, they were like, well, I'm going to try it. Like, literally nobody knew. So we were like, okay. So we sent our binder full of paperwork. And, uh sent it off and then just hoping that it, it would work with your $500, hoping that that didn't go to waste, you know? And it took a couple months for me to even get this, um, my DACA, it took me about nine months when really it should have been like, they were turning them out real quick before and, and for some reason mine didn't have taken that long. I remember going to immigration to, to an InfoPass um, appointment, which if you know anything about immigration or, in your, or you're confused, make an InfoPass appointment, it really helps. You go and basically you talk to an immigration officer. Don't take this anecdote as a as a you know an example because when I went they didn't know anything. Literally, I went and sat there for hours. I drove to Harlingen, living in Edinburgh. That's an hour, and I get there and, and I wait another hour in line and then I sit in front of this immigration officer. I was like, hey, my my doc is taking like you know, nine months. What's going on? Uh, or I think at that point it had been seven months. And he was just like, he looked into it. I remember I was a little click clacking away, and he was just like, yeah, I don't know, it's so weird. He's like, I'll put it in a request. And that was like it. That was all they could do. So it's so frustrating. Everything is frustrating and slow, you know, or at least my experience has been that. And and I think eventually your patience runs out, you know? And I think that's why for a while I was so 
almost bitter towards everything, towards especially the government and the American climate. You know, it's just like it always feels like. I don't know, I guess because when I was younger, I had this idea of like, and I think a lot of immigrants come with this idea, or your parents give you this idea of like, you're in a better place now, we brought you to this amazing place where you can make anything of yourself, and you can be anywhere you want to be, and you grow up with the movies about American pride, you know, there's, if I, if I sat here and thought about it, I'm sure I can think of all the movies that I watched and fell in love with that was just like, oh, it made me so proud to be American. And, and then you grow up, and you essentially just hit the glass ceiling with like full force you know what I mean and I think a lot of kids are feeling that right now uh, who have who have DACA who are graduating they're excited and now it's like oh you don't get that anymore and there's no backup right now there's no plan of action right now for what's next you know and and that they gave us a tiny window of between now and March 2018 if, if you have a DACA that expired between then you get to reapply. I was lucky, I was fortunate enough that I get to reapply. But I'm like, what if there is a high school senior who's, ex you know, DACA expired on April of 2018? What are they going to do? You know? And how must they be feeling to be, or, you know, uh, I just saw this video about this valedictorian. She was a valedictorian. And she kind of explained that she was an immigrant. Or I think she was a legal immigrant. And she kind of, I think she made the announcement nobody knew until she, she went up and gave her speech. And I was like, that's so powerful. But what is she going to do? You know? She worked so freaking hard, and now it's like... And I, and I felt that, you know, before. And maybe not even on the scale that those everybody else is feeling it, because I can only imagine someone who lived their whole life, maybe illegally, maybe in a situation where their parents brought them here. You know, again, they didn't know. I don't consider their parents criminals for doing that, but maybe they didn't take the legal, again, quote-unquote, avenue... And then they're like, okay, here, we're going to give you this DACA to help you out. And they're like, oh, my God, finally, this sigh of relief, because I remember that sigh of relief. And then now it's, like, taken away, you know? That must be even worse, that feeling of having nothing, then getting something and taking it away. At least I had something, you know, even though it was always weird and shady and very expensive or whatever. At least I always had some kind of status, and I could stand here and talk to people about this because... I'm not afraid, or maybe I should be, right? But I'm not right now. I'm, I'm not afraid to speak out because I'm like, I, I wasn't illegal ever. So I should be able to, at least I can say how horrible my experience was. Imagine people who were illegal or who had an illegal status. I don't want to say were illegal because I hate when people call other people illegals. It's like the worst moniker that you can ever give an immigrant. Like, ugh. Yeah, as if your existence is right. illegal. Illegal. Your whole persona, your whole being is not illegal. Like, what? What am I, like, meth? Like, give me a break, you know? It's just, I hate it. Andrea said she's trying to balance her need to speak out with her need to just live. I'm honored to be able to be able to speak and have a voice about it because so many are either too afraid or having too much to lose or, I mean, personal friends of mine, family members, are too afraid to say anything because it is that detrimental to their life. It, it is like, to some people I feel like, you know, I don't personally feel this way, but I'm sure a lot of people do to where, you know, it's like Mexico is not my life. That would mean possible. You know, I don't know what people are thinking, but I, I just feel like if I don't want to go back or be kicked out essentially, and I'm okay, and I'm like, I could live in Mexico. I think I could hack it. I think it would be hard, but I, I think I can hack it. I mean, there's people out there who don't feel that way, you know? So how awful... And, and who are too afraid to speak out. So how awful must it be to be silenced that way? And to be 
take all, any rights you were given in the smallest scale with DACA taken away. That to me, I'm like, I can't just sit and not say something and not do something and and this is the smallest scale, you know, I could be out there, you know, sleeping in a sleeping bag outside my, my senator's office or whatever, but but I at least this, you know, because at the same time, we're all just people, and I think we're people who, we're on this doctor because we're working, we're going to school, we're, you know, at the same time, we can't just leave our lives to go protest all day, you know, unfortunately, I wish, but I'm like, I have a job, I have bills, I, you know, I need to keep living a life, and that's what we're fighting for, is to keep living a life. Literally, I feel like what a lot of people don't realize is how much their normal everyday life is a luxury. A luxury to be able to just get a driver's license, to get a job, to go to school. Yeah, it's a luxury that a lot of people who felt like they were just like you, who grew up, you know, maybe with a very similar experience to, to someone who's a citizen, don't get that luxury. And they have a very hard time going through life doing it you know, living a, a quote-unquote normal life. You know, today I was talking to a friend of mine, and he's, uh, he's very right-wing, but tries to be open-minded or whatever. And he was, he read and heard the, you know, another podcast that I was on and he was like, wow, I didn't know that that was a situation. I didn't even know that was a, a problem that existed. Like, I always thought that everyone who, if they were in a situation where they didn't have papers, it's because they came here illegally. And I was like, well, now you know, you know, it's a surprise. And, um, and he was just like so shocked. And, and he was like, and he's kind of one who likes to call me and like discuss politics because he knows we're going to argue because he's super right-wing and I'm super left-wing, but he enjoys it. It's very weird. But I guess I do too because I'm still with Ryan, right? But anyway, so he was like, so what do you think is... He literally flat out was like, what do you think is the solution? And I was like... Oh. And then I kind of felt dumb for not knowing. I was like, well, I feel like I should have an answer, but it's like, well, why should I? Do you? I was like, do you know what we should do? And he was like, oh, I don't know. Like, like do you think we should limit the amount of people? And I'm like, well, how does the amount of people... I was like, what's the problem of letting people in? You know, is it a strain on our resources? If you think about it, and if you see the actual numbers and statistics, immigrants are less likely to commit crimes, you know, if not forced to it by not having papers and having to commit to a life of crime, you know, if maybe they had papers, they wouldn't do that. Uh, but most, you know, immigrants who are here, especially on DACA, are, are, first of all, on DACA, you can't have a criminal record to get it. So let's clear that one right up. Like... You literally cannot get it. They will deny you of your criminal record. So 0% of DACA recipients are criminals. Or, you know, maybe if you consider traffic violation <laughs> criminal, but, you know, than that, no. So, you know, it's like immigrants have some of the highest education or strive to have, you know, I know neurosurgeons are usually mostly immigrants, you know. And so it's like they create businesses. They So what if it's boosting the economy, and a lot of them are paying the government with no benefits, so if it's boosting the economy, it's helping employment, like, what really is the problem? What's the strain on the resources that we're talking about here? Because if you're talking about, like, welfare, most immigrants don't qualify. If we're talking about, like, what are we talking about, you know? And I, and I kind of asked him that. I was like, you know, a lot of, and I'm sure many people will hate me for saying this, but I'm like, if you want to talk about burden on society, most, a lot of Americans are just as much of a burden on society as immigrants are, you know? It's like, so what are we talking about a limited number here? And he was like, well, okay, well, yeah, I guess, you know, some will ruin it for all of you. And I was like, well, what does that mean? Like, you know, what does that, oh, sorry, what does that mean? Like, what does that have to do with anything? 
I was like, whether I came here, I came here illegally, and and there's people who came here illegally, and we're all in the same boat. So who ruined it for who? How is that anybody's fault? It's the government's fault for not having a better plan, you know? And again, I, I want to, you know, I want to say, like, when he asked me, like, well, what do you propose? I'm like, well, I don't fucking know, and I felt stupid, but I'm like, at the same time, I didn't go to, you know, I didn't study this, I haven't been a politician, so maybe if I did, I would have an answer. I was like, hey, you know, my boss is like, did you hear what happened with the stock and stuff? And he's like, oh, yeah, I heard. And I was like, you know, it applies to me, right? And he's like, what? <laughs> I guess he didn't, isn't that involved in the hiring, or at least the legal paperwork of it. So he was kind of shocked, and he was like, oh, I didn't know. And, and I think after that, you know, he was just like, he started doing kind of all this research on it. And, you know, and that's what I, that's what I always hope for people. I'm like, do, do research. Like, really, really, like, don't take, I think a lot of people take their, dad's word for it, you know, or their uncle's cousin who's a lawyer, he told me that DACA is a handout, so that's why I know, you know, and they just have this belief, you know, and I think what's really happening right now and what's really important is like, you know, millennials have something that a lot of the older generations didn't have, which is the internet, you know, we have a wealth of information, not to say that all the information on there is accurate, because that's obviously not true, but, um, you have, if you do research, if you know what you're looking for, if you check your sources, you can do research and you can find out the truth about a lot of things, including something like immigration, you know? Don't take whoever said's word for it or because you saw one article and posted on Facebook that had like a link that looked, you know, official, whatever. I think a lot, a lot of people don't do their research. A lot of people are stuck on traditional values and, and thoughts that it's so hard for our society to progress because of that. You know, I think baby boomers and millennials are just having like the clash of the century, you know? It's just like old ideals and new ideals is clashing and clashing. And I have so much faith in millennials because of this. You know, a lot of people love to trash talk millennials about being social media and their phones a lot. And it's like, get over it. You know, it's, everyone had some, you know, baby boomers had TV and there was someone before, you know, everyone has, but this is different. This is like, information and like knowledge at our fingertips it's greater than any other stupid thing they ever called you know mind-numbing you know this is better this is this is big and and I feel like when people start realizing that being able to see a video of protesters you know I'm, I'm getting a little off topic here but I'm just saying it's it's you know being able to see this something like like us finding out immediately about the whole thing happening in Fadfugas we wouldn't know that if we were living in a time before the internet. We wouldn't know that right now, you know, and it would have to be a big enough story to get out. It would have to be let out, essentially, by the media. And we knew instantly that that happened. And it pissed us a lot of us off, you know, but it's like, if we didn't have that, we wouldn't know. And so it's things like that that give me hope. And it's things like this, what I'm doing, that give me hope. I'm like, I, I hope somebody that, that feels like, you know, like like they got left in the dust by their government. Here's this, and it's like I'm I'm with you, dude. I feel you. I've been there. All I can tell you is to have faith because that's all we can all have, you know. And, and I I truly believe that something has to come out of this. It's been at least for me too long, you know. For God's sakes, you know. And the and again, there are avenues like getting married, but I'm not gonna get married because the government told me to, or because the government's basically forcing me to. 
I feel like that's always kind of blaring me in the face. I, I remember I posted something on, on Instagram about this, about the whole thing, you know, when I first found out. And, like, one of the comments was, like, some random guy being like, hey, if you want to stay, I'll marry you. And, like, I think it was serious, too, because he ended up, like, messaging me later, and I was just like, ah. But, oh but, it's, but some people consider it, you know, it's because they, like, that would, be, that would really be easy. I don't know this guy, but it would be easy. Yeah, no, yeah. I remember joking about that with, friends like oh wouldn't it be great you know right. get hitched so you can you can stay here easy peasy because essentially it is you know and I, I could take that route I have friends and everything and and friends that I could because you have to prove to the government you know very like eh, kind of way <laughs> but you do have to prove something I have friends who were like yeah I'll marry you like but I don't want it that's so like I don't know and I, I said this earlier like that's so 1984-esque you know you're being forced by your government into, like, life decisions, you know? And I'm sure everyone has had an experience like that, but in marriage, like, where you're involving something as deep and emotional as marriage, maybe to some people it's not a big deal, but to me it is. And, like, I don't want to marry because I have to. I want to marry because I, I'm in love with someone, you know? And it, you, you know what's funny is, like, the fear I have of marrying someone who's not a citizen. Or falling in love with someone who's not a, I'm like, if I happen to, like, fall for someone who's not a citizen, like, I don't think I, I think that would end the relationship. Because what am I going to do then? You know? Literally, but you have to think about that. Like, you have to actually consider that and, like, it, it, man, that sounds shitty. I hope that doesn't sound as bad as I said. But you know what I'm saying? You know, you have to at least, these thoughts cross your mind when you're in this situation. It's like, you don't just think about, oh, I don't know, this guy's cute. I'm like, oh, this guy's cute. Is he, does he have papers? <laughs> just you know, but you, but you definitely do discuss right. your mind. Because it's... Because then it's a double whammy of problems. Yeah. <laughs> now it's both of you who have a problem and who both of you could... And if you're not from the same country, but you're both on a DACA, you're like, ooh, you're even more fucked, you know? Yeah. And sent to different places yeah. across the world. So back in September, the Trump administration announced that anyone whose DACA was expiring before March 2018, which is this month, could reapply and get an additional two years of coverage under DACA. So that gave Andrea four weeks to come up with $500 to complete her application. She did get it. She borrowed it from her brother, and she was able to get an additional two years of DACA protection. But once those two years are up... Hers and thousands of other futures are uncertain. While Congress didn't pass a permanent solution to DACA before the program officially expired on March 5th, it's still tied up in the courts. So it's really not certain what's going to happen to it at this point. I, I can only keep positive about it. That's all you really can do because when you have nothing to go on, which right Right now, literally, I sit here and there's nothing to go on. I have no idea. All I know is that I could possibly get it for two more years, and that's all I know. I know my brother won't get it because his expires in 20, December 18, 2018, so it's like, after that, I don't know what's going to happen to him. You can, you can only live in, like, from here to then, from here to then, from here to then, when you're in my situation, and when you're in the situation of, what, 800,000 people, DACA recipients. That's the situation, is you live your life like that. And, you know... I want to say it made me chingona, but at the same time, it's hard. It's hard for sure. And who knows how things would have been different if that was the case. Andrea said that she went through a time in her teenage years when she was very bitter about the United States. Now she can be a little bit more retrospective about it, but she's just hoping that people will inform themselves about immigration 
and that her generation will finally do something about it. Most people are just really misinformed about what everything really is, you know? And, and they have strong opinions, just like I do, but I'm actually informed about at least this because I lived it, which I can't blame them for not being informed because they didn't live it. So it's this weird, like, I want to be mad, but it's like I can't be mad at the general public. All I can do is this. All I can do is educate them. And all I can do is spread this story and maybe have other people speak up. I, I, I would hope you know, that I, I, that they wouldn't be afraid, but I understand if they are, you know, I don't blame them at all. I don't like, I feel like people, you know, normally that, you know, you, you want to say, oh, this person is so brave for, you know, saying something. It's like, wow, I just don't have as much to lose, I guess. Eventually, Andrea would like to become a lawyer to help people like her. But the upheaval with DACA in 2017 got in the way. Right now, she's working for a forensic psychologist, so that's an intersection between mental health research and the legal field. She said other people going through immigration or DACA struggles should feel free to contact her. Talking about it can help relieve the stress and anxiety. If there's any questions or anything like that, I want to be able to help people to a certain extent where they can reach out to me and ask me. Um, and again, I don't know if I'm just yelling or doing this, but... I feel like we all kind of help each other with the knowledge that we do have. I got so much help through this process, so I want to do the same for other people, and especially because I feel for, for younger people going through things, like if there's anything I can ever do to help anyone, I, I mean, that's what I want to do. That's what I wanted to go to law school for, so maybe again, that'll sometime be the plan, but till then, I can do with only with what I know, which is kind of, you know, a bit of immigration now with all my life experience, so... You can find Andrea on Facebook and Instagram. Her handle is Andrea D-E-L-V, and we'll link to all her social media things in the description. Tune in next week when we bring you part two of our immigration series. We talked to two chingonas about their immigration experiences, and their stories were so powerful that we wanted to make sure we gave them the proper space to tell them. Catch us on Twitter and Instagram at Chingona Podcast. And you can also check out our website, chingonapodcast.com. Talk to you next week, chingonas.